0: get your first book for just 9.99 by using the code chirp CHIRP one more time that's bookofthemonth.com use the code chirp and get reading
1: Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit LitBreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. LitBreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult romance, and other book genres. That's the LitBreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit LitBreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people.
1: You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really
1: there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy.
0: Just one person at just one time, right? (laughs) Okay, everybody,
1: here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two human beings attempting to make sense. This is about people who make book objects with their hands. Thanks for listening. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm uh, here sitting in a chair in Los Angeles. Uh, I hope you're feeling good. I hope you're feeling well, I should say, wherever you happen to be. My guest today is Daniel Alarcon, Very pleased to have him here on the program. Uh, Do you like how I pronounce that uh, properly? Alarcon? I think it's okay for me to do that. Or am I supposed to just say it like uh, in Americanese? Alarcon. Alarcon. Anyway, uh, Daniel has a new book out called At Night We Walk in Circles. Uh, It's been generating heavy buzz in the book media and has been uh, earning all kinds of plaudits. It's available now from uh, Riverhead in Hardback. And Daniel and I are going to be talking in just a moment First, however, uh, I wanted to tell you uh, what I've been up to Just because I I tend to do that during this portion of the show I went to see a taping of uh, Conan O'Brien last night Is that interesting? A buddy of mine uh, works on the show So I got to go down there and uh, sit in the green room and watch the production unfold Which was interesting You know, it's fun to be, you know, to be wandering around uh, backstage amid the uh, various uh, cables and other uh, equipment. (laughs) And uh, M.I.A. was the musical guest. I don't know her real name. M.I.A. That's all I know her by. Uh, But she was there. And then it was Will Arnett and uh, Jim Gaffigan. And then M.I.A. did the uh, musical portion of the program. And uh, I was standing just off stage as she did her uh, performance by herself. And, uh, I felt bad for her. (laughs) Just the fact that she was all by herself out there on stage, uh, performing and dancing. It caused me to experience uh, feelings of anxiety is what I'm saying, because, you know, she's in front of a studio audience. It's a very contrived live music scenario. It's not the same as a concert. You know, you're being taped. It's for television. And, uh, you know, I, obviously I was projecting because I cannot imagine doing something like that and holding people's attention. <laughs> if you can imagine uh, me, just imagine me for a moment, singing and dancing on stage by myself, <laughs> uh, it's unthinkable. So I felt worried about her during that portion of the program. I felt like she needed other people around her, uh, perhaps some backup dancers, perhaps uh, some uh, singing children or something, or even a band, just a band. Usually there's a backup band, but uh, on this occasion there was no band in sight. It was just M.I.A. up there by herself in a uh, flowing red, diaphanous, uh, robe-like garment So, that happened. And, uh, you know, uh, hats off to her for her bravery. (laughs) I don't know why I'm telling you this. Anyway, uh, I wanted to uh, also share some mail before we get going. I've been getting a lot of uh, email lately. What does that mean? Does that mean the show has been good or bad? I don't know. But I've been getting a lot lately. And it seems to come in waves. So, I figured I would read one. Uh, This letter comes from a listener named Stefan who writes, Dear Brad, Forgive me if you've already talked about the Chelsea Martin interview on another show, or if you've gotten a ton of feedback already, but I just finished listening to it and I thought I would chime in. Towards the end of it, it almost seemed like you were screwing with her. Although, knowing your approach, I'm certain you weren't when you were asking her about her preferences in contemporary fiction. That's when things really hit a low point. It was reminiscent of Katie Corrick, asking Sarah Palin what newspapers she reads. Chelsea Martin was just sort of insulting to all the writers and artists who care deeply about what they're doing and constantly try to perfect their craft. Her blasé attitude came off as really immature. It was worse even than the monosyllabic Tao Lin. You're going on an interview show. You have some obligation to answer questions like you care. This is starting to feel like a disturbing trend among some of these Uh, Alt-lit writers that have blossomed Mainly through the internet You've interviewed several of them This sort of attitude where nothing is important Or worth taking seriously It's cloying It also seems that most of these people Don't really have to work for a living Which may play a large role You do a good job of balancing the practical I.e. making a living With the pursuit of artistic truth It's too bad Martin wasn't willing to do the same Signed uh, Signed Stefan so uh thanks uh Stefan for listening and weighing in and you know for those of you listening who might not be, you know have context he is referring to episode 220 my context or my conversation with Chelsea Martin and uh in particular he's referring to the moment in the program or in that episode uh, when I asked her to name some of her favorite contemporary authors and she refused to do it <laughs> which you know Uh, I, you know, I hate those kinds of questions, which I think I said when I was talking to her, I hate it when people put me on the spot and ask me who my favorites are in any category. So, uh, I understand drawing a blank and I, you know, I can even, uh, understand not wanting to answer the question because it's a dumb question, but uh, not wanting to answer it because it's quote unquote private, which is what, uh, Chelsea said. That confuses me a little, which I said in the interview, you know, like how hard is it to just say, oh, you know, I really like so-and-so's work. That seems painless to me and, and perhaps even uh, generous, but for whatever reason, she did not want to go there. Uh, and that's uh, you know, that's her prerogative as uh, as to her delivery, like her vocal delivery during the interview. You know, I've said this before. I I don't have a problem talking to uh, just about anybody on this show. I certainly don't have a problem talking to shy people or people who might not be, you know, uh, inclined towards uh, long conversations with people they don't know. (laughs) Um, You know, I've talked to people like this many times. I don't hold it against them. Not everyone is a talker in the classic sense. One thing uh, I will concede, however, is that a lot of these outlet writers do seem to be shy uh, and or uh, monotone or whatever you call it. And uh, I'll be honest, it does make me wonder if it's a thing. <laughs> like, uh, is this a tribal decision? Like, am I being uh, played somehow? Because that's the only part of it. That's the only thing that would that would make me uh, a little uh, pissed off is if... You know, it was somehow some sort of concerted effort to make things intentionally difficult for me. (laughs) Um, In that case, I would feel a little stupid and uh, annoyed. But, you know, I tend to doubt that this is the case. It seems like doing something like that, you know, first of all, that's a conspiracy theory. That's what it would be. All of these people somehow conspiring to do this. And uh, it, I think it would require some, uh, you know, some pretty serious coordination. <laughs> You'd have to be organized. Or, you know, maybe it's like a mimicry thing. Maybe that's it. You know, like uh, cultural movements, uh, you know, they're they rooted in mimicry. People doing things and then mimicking one another. And then like this movement is born, right? So maybe they're all mimicking Tao Lin and his vocal delivery but you know that strikes me as strange it also strikes me as unlikely but what do i know so anyway i liked talking with chelsea i did the best i could she wasn't the easiest person to interview but you know she didn't have to be if that's not who she is so uh, anyway thank you stefan i appreciate the
0: uh, feedback
1: My guest today is Daniel Alarcon. He is the author of a new novel called At Night We Walk in Circles. Uh, He is a past nominee for the Penn Hemingway Award. And in 2010, the New Yorker magazine named him one of America's best uh, 20 writers under 40, and so on and so forth. Uh, He's a very gifted individual, and I'm very happy to have him here. So uh, let's get started with it. This is my conversation with Daniel Alarcon, and his new novel, once again, is called at night, we walk in circles i 'm in seattle washington i 'm in a, in a hotel room um, it's it 's kind
2: of fancy pants i got to be honest this is, a, this is a much nicer hotel than i 'm accustomed
1: to see this is what happens on your like your third book tour after some success like things start to i mean is that, or is this it just Seattle is just Seattle like you have some nicer hotels
2: no no, i think this is this is a riverhead uh, Splurging, um, maybe they 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 saw me in New York and they were like, "Man, he needs he needs to pick me up so <laughs> I'm at a nice place."
1: <laughs> well, that's good. I feel like authors should be treated nicely on the road. That's not a. I agree. I agree because I mean, book tour is kind of grueling. I mean, it, you know, like like I shouldn't even say book tour; just travel in general. When you're in airports, like you know, back to back to back to back, that will wear down anybody.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, l- l- we can talk more about the the travel part because I feel like th- there's something that's just remarkably distasteful about a published author complaining about book tour. Um, (laughs) right. You know what I mean? It's just, it just, it just seems so, so smug, like, Oh God, my novel was published. I have to go out (laughs) and read in front of these people who paid to see me or bought the book. It's so horrible. Right. Right. You know, it, it it just, if I were to, 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 to get into that and, and I could, um, I would I would feel like I'd, I'd already failed at this well, uh, interview.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad that you're uh, I'm glad that you're conscientious enough to notice that because I would have gone there easily. I would have started bitching about the uh, the whole concept of <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we can come back to it in like minute forty eight see what happens. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, I mean you know travel that stinks, but it's nice that you're out there. The book is getting uh, you know warmly received. It seems like the critical response has been really good, and. Uh, I'm interested because I was reading about you know its genesis and its creation, and it was a really difficult process. And I think for people listening, many of whom uh, are either writers uh, professionally or aspiring writers, you know, they can look at a guy like you who's had so much success, and and frankly, so much success so young, like published uh, stories in the New Yorker, the Twenty Under Forty. Um, you know, award winning novels, uh, fancy hotel rooms on book tour. Um, You know, you've had a lot of things go your way. You've gotten the work done, but you know um, this new novel did not come easily. And there was a lot of, um, you know, there were were moments where you were wondering if it was, if it was over, correct?
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, I, 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 I think self doubt is part of the process. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's with you daily, you know, you, 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 you wake up, you write, you read it and you wonder, you know, what, what, what the hell did I just do? You know, is that, is, is that sentence going to make it to the end of the book? Am um, I going to make it to the end of the book? It's, it's, a it's definitely daily, you know defeat, you know, every, every day you get, you get worn down a bit. But what happens is you look back after, you know, a month of working every day or two months of working every day, six months, and hopefully you can see progress. Um, it just happened in my case. I, 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 I hit a, a number of, of cul-de-sacs and had to turn around find my way back out and then, and then keep going down the path, you know? Um, and yeah, on, on a number of those, Occasions uh, it was quite painful. The, the most difficult was at the end of 2010 when when I'd finished a draft of a book that had the same title but but had uh, really almost nothing to do with the current version of the book. Um, and I read it and it was just terrible. It was just so bad. <laughs> um, and and I and I showed it to a couple friends and I, and I was hoping that you know I'm pretty hard on myself, so I was hoping maybe I'm just being hard on myself. And so I showed it to a couple friends of mine and they were like you know. you're not getting hard
1: on yourself. It's pretty bad. (laughs) These are good friends then. These are
2: very good friends, you know? And, and, and I mean, you know, they, they, that's the kind of news you got to break to someone pretty slowly, you know, that's, that's like, it's, it's, it's a, and with a lot of, with a lot of tact and a lot of delicacy and, and they sort of didn't say this book is terrible. They said, they didn't say to me, start, throw it out and start over, but they put me in a position where, I had to make a decision and I made that decision, you know, throw it out and start over.
1: Okay. So how did they do that? Like, I mean, just in terms of if there's anybody out there who might be uh, reading for a friend or something like, is there something specific they did, um, you know, that uh, helped, you know, that, that kind of produced the delicacy that you're talking about?
2: Well, I mean, it, it helps that the, the, they're old friends. It helps that I was staying my my, my friend Mark in, in LA, you know, um, I think he was he was particularly careful in how he phrased everything because I was sleeping in his spare bedroom <laughs> you know so he, so if I was going to like you know put my head in the oven he he, he didn 't want it to be you know on his property right. <laughs> um, it was it, it was you know just 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 careful they they talked a lot about what was working and then they asked a lot of questions that i'd i 'd asked myself um, you know it, it was it was a dream workshop it was two or three hours you know of, two really smart readers who paid very close attention to your work trying to help you make it better, you know? So if at the end they're like, Hey, this isn't good enough, you know, to your own high standards, um, I had to believe them, you know, and I knew, I knew they were right. I knew they were totally right.
1: Okay. So Um, did, was it a situation where, because I know with close friends that you've known a long time, there's always kind of a shorthand. And was it a case where like you sort of understood, uh, you know, implicitly that they were saying, blow it up. Without them having to say it, or was that something that, like you know, you kind of took what they said, and then walked away from that experience, and then a little bit later decided to, to, chuck it on your own.
2: I I, I decided later to chuck it on my own. In fact, you know, there, there was an entire plot line that 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 uh, that I won't get into that that you know just didn't withstand scrutiny, um, and had uh, you know a number of bells and whistles attached to it that made up the trunk of, of that book, and uh, and I. Sort of a few weeks after that, I was talking to to, to one of the friends from from the workshop, uh, and I was like, "Hey, I think I've I just got to cut that entire part of it, that entire the whole thing." And um. And you know, it. it I guess he. It sort of felt to me like he'd been waiting for me to come around to that decision, although he'd never said it himself. You know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um,
2: and uh, you know, because that's a that's a really crazy thing to say. To someone, hey, like you know, the entire plot of your novel isn't working. Um, you know, start over.
1: But it's funny too, like when you finally come to those um, moments of reckoning and realization, like how with the benefit of hindsight, it can seem so yeah. obvious, like, of course this wasn't working, you know? But you And can- even then
2: it felt, it, felt, it felt really liberating, man. I mean, like, you know, because, because revision is very hard, but creating new pages has never been that hard for me. I, I mean, I, I can always write new pages. It's, it's making the old pages make any sense. That's the real brutal part of, of writing, um,
1: so, do you are you really permissive with yourself on early drafts? Like, are you one of those people who kind of like, you know, I don't know, if free write is the right term, but like, do you really let yourself go? I mean, and just play and not really like, can you turn off that internal voice that's kind of editing as you go?
2: Yeah, yeah, in spells I can, and I and I I can also, um, I, you know, it, it, whenever I have sort of like that moment of, well, you know, what should I? What should these characters? what should be happening next? You know, I just always resort to putting my characters in a bar and, and having them talk. And, um, and that helps, you know, I mean, you should have to cut it all, but you know, like you, you sit them down and have them drink a little bit at the very least, you know, something happens. So, uh, you know, I might have, uh, you know, seven or eight unusable bar scenes per <laughs> novel. One that, day, that
1: one if... day though, you're going to write the ultimate bar novel. It's going to happen.
2: No, 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 <laughs> I mean, I'll just do the, the, the collected bar scenes of Daniela Alarcón. <laughs>
1: Um, but this is like, you know, in a strange way and and possibly in a selfish way, like hearing these kinds of anecdotes is always heartening for me. Um, when like a writer of accomplishment, when you when you discover that a writer of accomplishment went through this kind of hell, <laughs> uh, it, it makes it makes you realize like it really is about uh, it's a it's very common for this kind of thing to happen. Totally, And it's just part of the deal. And I think. It's very easy to trick yourself, even even if you've heard this before. It's easy to trick yourself into thinking, "Well, Daniel Alarcón, he's you know, he's not chucking an entire draft of a novel. He's getting it, you know, mostly right on the first go." But that's not yeah. the
2: case. Bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I heard. I, I had lunch with Vanda um maybe three or four years ago, and she described a very similar story of her, her first novel. I mean, imagine the 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 cojones on this on this woman. You know, her first novel was already bought and was in, uh, copy edits and she was reading the copy edits and she said she kept falling asleep. And then she realized that, that, that it was really boring and she didn't want to publish it. And she pulled the publication and started over. And, and she told me that story at a point when I was really struggling with the book. Um, and, and I guess it just, uh, you know, I didn't connect it to later, but, but, uh, but you know, yeah, I'm certainly not the only one. You know, it 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 does require a certain amount of, you know, fortitude. Um, but I also feel like it's something that a lot of novelists have. You know, you 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 if you have high standards. If you don't want to publish crap, um, then then you got to make that
1: call. Well, but you know, I was going to say like this: the, the anecdote about Vendela Vida is that it makes me think of like, wow, what creative. The word character comes to mind because. Um, The urge to publish and to see oneself in print and to have some sort of externalized version of success happening, especially after you've spent all these years telling your friends that you're working on a book, you know, Um, that's got to be a strong impulse to work against. And I think it takes, um, like you said, cojones to um, to stop it and say, no, you know, my standards, the standards that I have imposed upon myself uh, supersede any kind of like egoistic desire to be in print. Like I don't know if every every creative person makes that decision, you know.
2: I think a lo- I think a lot of them do. I think a lot of us do. And then and then when you when when you're done, you I picture like uh, Jordan after the he wins the first trophy. You like are bathed in champagne, cradling your book, like the way he's <laughs> holding the trophy. Yeah. Yeah, that that was that was me. Like, you know, on on November first, <laughs> in my house, just covered in champagne, holding a hardcover.
1: Well, I always say, I always say, because there are so, especially because uh, with a novel and any book length project, but with a novel because it's the longer form and it takes so long to get one done, that it's uh, writers need to mark moment, you know, mark the moment of completion um with some kind of celebration i think that's absolutely called for and it, it and to miss those opportunities is a mistake i think
2: yeah i agree i agree i'm gonna get drunk tonight good yeah
1: so there, I, I t-
0: there you sold me man <laughs> <You> sold me <laughs> that was incredibly difficult To <laughs> <laughs> twist my arm
1: Uh, so okay, so you know you have uh, an interesting life story. Uh, you are Peru. You were born in Peru, correct? Mm-hmm. I was born in Lima. Yes, but raised in Alabama. I was raised in Birmingham,
2: Alabama, and Hoover, Alabama, in fact. Okay, so in suburb of Birmingham, yeah.
1: Not the most common. Um, not not the most common like bi- biographical uh, arc, you know?
2: No, no, and certainly of of, of, of all the. The, the, the sort of details within my biography that, the, the the you know, he grew up in Alabama is the part that, that <laughs> seems to strike, you know, strike people as the most curious and bizarre, you know?
1: Well, I have relative um, I have, my folks are from the South and I have relatives, uh, an aunt and uncle and a bunch of cousins who are from Birmingham. So I grew up uh, going there periodically and, you know, hanging out with those guys. Like my aunt and uncle owned a candy store in a mall somewhere in Birmingham and, uh, I cannot remember the name of it, but if you were ever in some sort of mall, you know the candy store in every mall, yes, <laughs> they owned one of those, so perhaps yeah
2: enjoy... the, the, there are a number of malls that uh play important
1: what about uh parts what about of the... my childhood have you ever yeah, see, so... Have you ever heard of the diplomat deli in birmingham Is that a, hmm. does that ring a bell
2: it It rings a bell, but it's it 's so faint i can 't
1: hear the note okay well uh, my uncle that's <laughs> my uncle's deli. <laughs> But uh okay so how did you wind up there? Born in uh Lima and then your parents moved to uh moved you guys to the states.
2: Well, okay, so here's the story. We we went to the United States twice in fact. Um the first time my parents had finished medical school in Lima and they went um uh, to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore to do um to do, you know, uh, some kind of postgraduate doctorate thing or whatever at Johns Hopkins. Um they got they got an extra degree, they finished there, and then they went back to Peru. Both of my sisters were born in Baltimore, um, and then a few years later, I was born in Lima. And um, as it happened, one of my parents' classmates ended up at the University of Alabama in Birmingham in the medical school and recruited my parents.
1: Okay. Um, come to Alabama. So it, come to Alabama. <laughs> come to Alabama, yeah.
2: And, and, you know, I don't think that my parents had any idea... Really, where they were they were going, you know, or you know, they certainly um, thought of it in completely practical terms. You know, okay, good money, good opportunity, great education for our kids, and and you know, let's do it. And um, and yeah, you know, they landed in in, in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1980. Um, and I I you know, pe- people have all kinds of crazy responses when I tell them, when they they find out that I grew up in Alabama. And most often, unfortunately, people say things like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Um, <laughs> you know, it's, and and I I really had a lovely childhood. I, I I really have really fond memories of our family and my sisters and I, and in, in our house. And you know, I remember like planting a tree with my mom and like shooting you know hoops in the backyard and having a dog and you know, I mean, you know, and any number of sort of fairly normal suburban American, you know, memories, um, that, that I, that I cherish even, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty to, that that is complicated about growing up in the deep South, especially if one is not, um, of the sort of two dominant groups, you know, in in a, in a place that's pretty much, you know, black or white, if you're not one of those things, and then, you know, you, you see interesting things and, things that you might not even process until later um but it was it was it was a great place for me to grow up
1: okay so it was it's, I sounded mean, like normal childhood um i read something about you online where it was like you were memorizing shakespeare at the age of 10 or 11 is that true like were you were you really um prodigious as a reader as a kid and like did you show did you flash like really strong like literary signs at a young age
2: I did yeah and I, and I and i i mean that's 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 true. I was you know mostly it was this we would we would all do our homework at the kitchen table. my sisters uh and i my mom would do work too after dinner, right, and um so we all did sit and do our homework and uh and no one, no one could get up until everyone had finished, so I was the youngest, and so I'd finished my homework pretty quickly. My sisters had more homework because they were in middle school and high school. And um, so whatever they weren't working on actively, you know, I would just, you know, grab it and, and look at it, you know. And more often than not, you know, they they would have their books around and I would just, you know, grab whatever they were reading and read it. Um, and I do remember that my sister had to memorize uh, Shakespeare. And so she memorized it at a table with us and I memorized it too. So was yeah. It was like
1: like like the Hamlet, the to be or not to be, like that. Yeah, story? totally. Okay. Yeah. Totally. Okay, so I mean, it wasn't like I memorized the, like the whole play. You know? Okay, Like, I don't, don't want to. I'm picturing like boy genius, like like verbatim, like reciting Macbeth or something.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. That was
1: but that still, was not a. But still, you were reading like uh, beyond your your grade level, um, and, and yeah,
2: grade. yeah. I mean, we we were a fairly literate family, and and. And books were
1: super important
2: in our house, and part of the discussion and the conversation in the house, so yeah, yeah, for sure
1: did your parent were your parents like um like did you feel uh, that they were like driving you to academic success, you know what I'm saying like were you a really driven family um, yes,
2: very god, much. yeah, like in that in that in that classically you know almost cliched immigrant way of like you know, go to school, son, and come back with straight A's. So help you God, <laughs> you know? Um, and like, you know, you know, if you're not, if you're not the lead dog, the, the view never changes. And this, this, this whole sort of like, you must excel, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and it, it's weird now that I'm, I'm a, I'm a parent and I'm, and I, on the one hand, you know, I, I I sometimes bristle under that kind of pressure. On the other hand, I I feel like I owe that kind, of my, like who I am, to that kind of to that same pressure. You know what I mean? And so I, I wonder, like like can I somehow channel like my my that that stern like determined uh, you know like uh, very conventional definition of success? Can I can I channel that that, that thing that my father and, and my mother had? And like, can I pretend to be that for my for my kids? Because I don't really have it, you know. I have to. I, I totally have to play actor, you know.
1: Oh, I was going to say maybe that's why like your uh, your current novel involves acting. Maybe that's some part, like psychological component, some small. Part.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, well, certainly parents know how to how to fake it. Um, yeah, no. I know I I wondered. I wonder if it's if it's healthy. You know, I think it's one of those questions. Like, you know, if you get to a certain age and you're fairly comfortable with who you are, then you're like, okay, is that? Do I have to? To what do I owe who I am? You know what I mean?
1: Right. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, And, like, do you, like, did your sisters, were they also high achievers?
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. It was just no option, man. Like, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, go, go and get those A's or come back and, like, you know, face, you know, you know, the, the, the dragon, you know, like
1: the, the Tiger Mom. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, kind of. Yeah. You know? So did it you was, ever, did you ever rebel? I mean, did you have, um, any kind of wild streak as a kid or did you toe the line pretty much and like do what you, do what you were told and get those A's? And then, I mean, you went on to Columbia, so you must've gotten the grades and the SATs and stuff, but did you ever have, a uh, you know, was there any room to go crazy and do stupid things when you were 15? I mean, this
2: you know, this was Alabama. I mean, you know, the stupid things is just like in the water, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, we did a lot of the stupid things that, that, that are sort of required of you to, 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 to live. Yeah. You know, the, 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 boredom of, you know, a Friday night in Alabama at age 17 is just, I was just stultifying and, and, you know, you overcome it by, you know, driving outside, you know, the sort of civilized limits of, of, of the city and like pulling into a, you know, uh, grocery store or, or, you know whatever like a gas station and and stealing beer and running out you know that's what you, that's, that's that's your entertainment <laughs> i was just and then, gonna,
1: i was just gonna say like drinking in a field because i grew up in you know i grew up in indiana which isn't quite the same but has a similar stultifying boredom component and it was just like you know go to the woods <laughs> you know and drink. yeah
2: there was there was a lot of drinking in the woods there was a lot of like you know uh, terrible terrible marijuana um you know like not, not quality. Yeah. Seeds,
1: lots of seeds,
2: lots of seeds, ditch weed. (laughs) Um, there was a, there was a, you know, a local, uh, you know, older high school kid who who, he worked at a shoe store and you'd go and pretend to buy shoes and he would, you know, like slip it in a shoe and all this kind of like, you know, (laughs) cloak and dagger stuff that was absolutely unnecessary, but made it more interesting. You know, um, yeah, there was all that stuff. You know, that that I was in a band. You know, that was that was fun. I mean, we played, we played like Ice Cube covers and Metallica songs and like <laughs> Charles Mingus songs. And you what know. do
1: you what do you what do you play?
2: Uh, now I strictly play like baby lullabies for my kid <laughs> on
1: the ukulele. But uh,
2: at the time, I played guitar, um, electric guitar,
1: I should say. And you have the good hair. I have to say, I'm jealous of your hair. You have like natural, like musician rock star hair.
2: Well, except that it it goes straight up, and and does not. You cannot headbang because it just doesn't move. But
1: you know? <laughs> still um, you know, for a guy with a receding hairline, I feel like that's. Uh...
2: <laughs> but but you know the other thing is I you, you got to understand you got to understand my situation. I grew up in uh, in the age of Seinfeld with this hair.
0: Oh
1: right.
2: And so I was I was basically ridiculed as, uh, as Kramer, you know, like, <laughs> a- and, and this happened to me specifically, it happened to me, uh, when we'd go play soccer, you know, with other, against other schools sure. and the other, the other team would taunt me, you know, call me Kramer or whatever. And then years later I met a friend, uh, you know, a guy, we were playing soccer and, and he gave me his email address and his email address was Afro Kramer you know, at whatever, whatever. And I was like, what? And, and I was like, he's like, yeah, you know, when I was in high school, I had this, day, you know, people would yell at me and they would call me that. And I was like, really? <laughs> what happened you, to me too?
1: Did you guys just immediately like have a hug? Like what happened?
2: Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we, we bonded. We became good friends. Yeah, oh.
1: of course, of course. So, okay. So growing up in Alabama, um, you know, I'm assuming that, uh, like there was some part of you that felt very connected to your Peruvian roots, like in terms of like your self-identification and like your self-concept as a child, like, how did you make sense of all that? You know, did you feel like fully American or did you feel like, uh, you know, there was like a, some sort of split or. Yeah. Well, I felt, I didn't, I had never felt Alabamian,
2: you know, um, I didn't, I didn't have much regional pride in part because I didn't feel like, uh, it's not that I didn't belong there and it's not that I had a, you know, a, a hard time or anything because I didn't, it's, it's more that, that, you know, the, the deep South is a place with a lot of history and the people who live in the deep South are for the most part from the deep South generations back, you know, sure. and on, on both sides of the racial divide, you know, and especially in the eighties, it was not, you know, it was not a, a place that had a large immigrant populations and it was not a place that had, you know, ethnic communities, um, you know, there were no, there were no ethnic whites and, and, uh, or, or anyone else, you know, it was just black and white. And, uh, so it just, you know, it it didn't feel like a place that had lots of open cultural space for someone like me to fit in. And so, yeah, so I didn't sort of identify as, as Alabamian and it wasn't like super important to me. Um, and that made it very easy to imagine, uh, going away, you know? so that i knew that at a certain point high school would end that i would go away and i would go pretty far away
1: interesting did you and did like any of the racial stuff touch you you know like living in kind of in between the the white and black worlds
2: there's one anecdote yeah that i remember very clearly i mean you know and and if it touched me it was in very benign ways or ways that i didn't even notice or or you know or only occasionally noticed and there was one time i do remember that, that was shocking to me, and it still shocks me that that this happened. Um, but you know, my my uh, my 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 mother is very light skinned, and my father is dark skinned, and I'm I'm sort of look more like my mother, and uh, and I you know I can pass for for white you know in, in lots of circumstances, and I and I I it's not that I sit around and think like what what do people think that I am, but but I've noticed that that you know I can people often just assume that I'm white, and that's fine. Um, but one day my dad picked me up from soccer practice. It must've been like eight or nine. And, um, usually my mom picked me up. And so the friends on my team were like, Whoa, you know, Right. who's that? You know? And then suddenly they, they, they were, they sort of had questions about who, uh, who I was. And one of them said, Oh, where, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Peru. Well, it was all this while my dad's walking over, you know, I said, I'm from Peru. And my, uh, the, the other kid was like, I was like, "Where is that? Is that?" And he goes, "Is that in Africa?" And then before I had a chance to answer, the other kid said, "That's funny. You don't look like a nigger."
1: Oh my god!
2: And I was just stunned. I was totally stunned because even at that age, I knew that that was, you know, you, you, that's just not a word. It's okay, you know. And, right. And uh, but you know, he said it in such a, you know, dumbly innocent way. You know, I mean, blithely racist would be another way to describe it. Um and I just didn't know how to respond from that day forward my my name on the team was Peru um until the end of you know until I was sixteen or seventeen you know I played on on neighborhood teams and soccer my whole life, and I was Peru. that was my name something that I didn't even think about until much later uh, I was like wow um, i guess i you know it, it just became sort of like I guess I was the only one, so the,
1: that was just my name. And did you? But did you feel like, like I mean, I you know, that sort of stuff aside, it just seems. I don't know. There's a part of me that just it feel you feel sick thinking about it. But um, did you feel like you assimilated uh, well? Otherwise, you know, like
2: yeah, no, no, totally, totally, man. And and I also think that the 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 insecurities that I had were uh, about fitting in were not based on ethnic or racial identity, but we're just based on sort of normal adolescent angst about, you know, where do I fit in and who am I? Sure. Um, and uh, and I think a lot of that had, had to do with, you know, the school that I went to with sort of uh, with, uh, with who my friends were. You know, I, I had friends who were you know, of Chinese descent and, you know, of Indian descent um, and and uh, kind of this mishmash group and, you know, I had a Russian Jewish friend and, and, you know, a friend who was of Italian descent and, and, you know, that it, it, it sort of made it okay, you know?
1: Well, yeah. Um, And then, you know what, that's not something that people would commonly associate with Birmingham, Alabama, you know what I'm saying? Like that you would be in school with people from all those different backgrounds.
2: Yeah. 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 I think there, I mean, we, you know, it was, it was in part just because I, I went to this, this kind of, this, this, school that was uh kind of open-minded and broad you know you know looking at the world and and uh and that you know i was very fortunate that way
1: so were you and and as a student like you know we talked a little bit about your kind of lean into books like via the uh you know the homework table or whatever but like when you got into high school and stuff were you already setting your sights on writing and were you doing some of it or was it something that came a little later
2: yeah in high school i was already writing in high school i was um uh, you know b- writing pretty bad stories but but they w- i was writing them nonetheless and and i was really interested in in uh in um bleak <laughs> kind of bleak <laughs> sad dense stories i i was i was i just wanted to know how they did that you know Who, um who's they they being, you know, I, I, I really liked like the, the darkness of like notes from underground, you know, sure. You know, and, and just like it, it just uh, where the, the like despondency is a given and like the, the, the meaninglessness of life is a given. And you, you begin from that place and just, just dive deeper into the murk. You know, <laughs> I, that was just like who I was. And I liked that. I, I, I uh, Uh, which I see now is just a kind of just a response to the the just boredom of, you know, like normal adolescent boredom, you know, and, and kind of this, this, um, this thing that, that I think Nelson in in, in my most, in my current novel has as well, this sense that you're, you're killing time, you're waiting for your life to begin, you know, and you can't even quite identify it when you're 16 or 17, especially, but, but if you know that as soon as high school ends, you're going to leave, you know, you're going to go somewhere and you're probably never going to come back. Then there's a, there's a certain, there's a certain impatience that starts to build up. And I think some of what I had was that in in spite of the fact that I had, you know, very good friends and, and I was, you know, if I was maladjusted, I was no more maladjusted than any of my other friends. You know, I mean, we were, we were pretty good kids, you know, um,
1: and so did most of your friends, like, were you, were you among the few who got out and went away, or did most of, most of your friends do the same? Like, was that a common thing, like people going away to school?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, of, most everybody of, of my friends, of my close friends, left Birmingham, at least, uh, left, maybe left and came back. Um, um, you know, yeah, there was, there was quite a few.
1: And you went to Columbia. Mhm. Okay, so and that's what I mean, did you have your sights set on New York? Like how did you make that decision?
2: Um, I made that decision
1: This is going to sound stupid. Uh
2: the that Lou Reed album New York. Okay. Um that was that was pretty much it.
1: That was it. <laughs> That's as good a reason as I've ever heard of somebody picking their college. Usually, it's like there was a brochure, you know.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, there was there, there. I mean, there was there was just like you know, I, I wanted to go somewhere big, and and uh, and I was a huge Velvet Underground fan, a huge Lou Reed fan, and uh, and uh, you know, he just described a place that I wanted to, to see. Um, there's another another thing that that again, it, it strikes me now is so so provincial that it, it makes me smile, you know, uh, to think about this. But, you know, you, we go out, I'd go out to a party or whatever on a Friday night or a Saturday night and come home. And I always had the, 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 the custom of going to sleep with the radio on and, um, and there was a show on the local NPR station that I always listened to, like after going out, you know, i would come home. And it was from like two to four in the morning, and it was called Jazz After Hours. Um, I don't even know if it still exists, but I would listen to the show and and just you know usually just zone out and listen to jazz before I go to sleep. And uh, and the show did the very helpful thing of uh, of listing all the the all the bands that were playing in New York, you know, in in that week that weekend, right? Um, and they would you know they'd be like at the Blue Note, it's you know. It's uh you know, I don't know, I, I can't remember the names of the people, you know, it's the the Brentford Marsalis Quintet, and uh, you know, at the at Smalls down, you know, and the, whatever they would name all these clubs, and uh, you know, the Iridium, and you know, the Half node and you know, all these places that I wanted to go, and they would just say who was playing,
1: and um, and so wait, this was in, was this when you were in Alabama still, or was this when you had already made the move?
2: No, 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 this you you asked me why I wanted to move to New York. Oh, okay, yeah, because this, this, you know, this is. This, this
1: is why. This is you know because this reminds me. Um, what I'm thinking of is like some sort of like biographical bit of trivia from the life of Bob Dylan, where he's like living up in Hibbing, Minnesota, listening to these, um, you know, radio stations late at night that are broadcast from like way down like the Mississippi, in the South, you know, and he's listening to all this music. But it's kind of a similar thing. That's kind of cool.
2: Yeah. No. I mean, I wanted to. I wanted to go to New York. So I was like, wow, the, the Mingus Big Band plays at at the, the Fez you know, every Thursday night, like what, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) I want to do that. I I just want to go see that, you know? And and of course, that's what I, that's what I did.
1: That's pretty sophisticated musical, uh, interest for a a kid in high school. You're listening to like jazz and all that kind of stuff, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I think in some ways like, that's when you're at your most sophisticated. I feel like I've gotten less
1: sophisticated as I get older. That's a good point. That's a good point. I, I kinda, when I was like 24, I peaked. I knew everything, you know. And yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I peaked.
2: Uh, like for example, I was, I, I was really uh, huge into hip hop, and then Biggie died, and then that was it. <laughs> like I don't know a single rapper who's you know emerged since then. You know, uh, I, 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 you know. Unless like they do a Sprite commercial at the Super Bowl, like I don't—I've never seen them. I just don't know anything anymore.
1: Yeah, like uh, I, I had like a really—you uh, know—it was like one of these like signature moments in my life where I went out to the mail. This was years ago, but I remember going out to the mailbox and like taking the Rolling Stone out of the mailbox, and for the first time ever, not knowing who it was on the cover, like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and just being like, "Oh shit! Like, what happened to me?" You know? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's 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 a that's a that's a very sad moment.
1: Well but you know, and I think like keeping up with all of that stuff, you know, you realize as you get older and you get busier and you have kids or whatever it is that happens in life that sort of winds up um taking up your time. Like you realize how much time you had when you were young to keep up, you know. Like Yeah I just used Totally. To, you had hours to you know, and you could stay up late and get four hours of sleep and bounce up in the morning and all that kind of stuff. But Yeah. Yeah, um so great. so the New York years, you did you graduate uh with an English degree? Did you I mean was it a or no, you're you're an anthropology guy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did anthropology. Which I think, you know, and this is something that of course hindsight is twenty twenty, but um, that's, a Kurt Vonnegut was also an anthropology guy, uh, at least in whatever university studies he did. But I think that's an underrated degree for somebody who has a literary bent. Like I, usually it's like creative writing or English, but yeah. an, anthropology strikes me as like a really useful, um, it's a nice lens. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's sort of like, you
2: know, the observing people, you know, which is, which is what writers do and then observing people in, in, in sort of creating, uh, trying to understand the cultural context from which individuals emerge.
1: Well, I was going to say, because, like, it's particularly, I mean, it's it's, it's visible um, in your work and and in the way that it blends journalism with fiction, you know, or at least journalistic impulses with fiction, but also, you know, it reflects um, your existence, you know, kind of at this cultural nexus and, um, you know, the the experiences that you had uh, back in Peru and everything else, but it just... You can kind of see how the puzzle fits together, knowing...
2: Yeah, yeah, it t- totally. And and can I, can I tell you how I ended up in the anthropology department? Please. Because uh, because I should have been an English major. I really should have been, and I wanted to be. And I got to Columbia, and they ask you, you know, sort of what you want to be, and I said English. And so they give you an advisor in your department. And I remember that um, they gave you... that. This was before, you know, the Internet exploded into our lives, but there was a, there was still phone registration back then. I remember they'd give that. They give you a pin number and they would give you like, you know, call, you'd have these windows where you can call and you had a catalog and you had to dial in the numbers of the courses you wanted to take. and God, that, I,
1: all that. I totally forgot about that, but yeah, yeah. I, I had and to do that
2: too. Well, so I was, I was the beginning of my sophomore year and, um, and, uh, and I didn't know that you, your pin number was the same pin number forever, you know? Um, and I had misplaced that PIN number, you know, so I had to, to call up my advisor who was a kind of crotchety, unpleasant, you know, <laughs> elder statesman of the English department who smoked a lot. Back when you could smoke in your office, um, I think he was grandfathered in to like <laughs> to, to, to the idea of smoking indoors. Um, and uh, and uh, I called and I left a message. I was like, hey, you know, professor, what, you know, so-and-so, uh, this is the other and I don't have my PIN number whatever. I went and took a shower. Um, when I came back. There was a message blinking on my campus phone, and it was the professor. And he had he said, "You know, your PIN number is the same as your last one, and you've already missed, you know, your first two, you know, windows to register. And you know, you're so irresponsible. And I wonder if your parents know how you're wasting their money. You know, just went off on me for no reason and brought my parents into it. Um, and I was furious. I was just livid." And I called him back um, and uh and just you know he didn't answer, and I left him a message just being like, "How dare you you know like where you get the nerve like I'm working twenty hours a week i was I worked at a at a photocopy shop in in uh at, at Columbia every day, pretty much from eight thirty to twelve thirty and then I would have lunch and go to class. I was working my ass off, and this guy you know comes out of nowhere and and just you know starts hurling insults, so I hurled insults back. And then he, he left another message. Uh, I mean, he, 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 he must've heard that message called back, um, and, uh, and said, you know, I, uh, I've already called the Dean, you're threatening me, you know, you, you know, blah, 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 and yelled at me. And then he hung up on me, at which point I called him back and I was like, no one hangs up on me. And then I hung up on him. <laughs> um, and then like three minutes later, this is all before like nine in the morning. Um, the phone rings and it's like, uh, uh, this is the dean. <laughs> Why don't you come in to talk to me today, after your job, you know? And basically, we we came to an agreement that uh, that I shouldn't go to see this professor anymore. I should get a new counselor or a new advisor or whatever. And I and I just out of pure, you know, stubborn pride, I refused to take another English class. And and so I didn't. And uh, and I just basically stumbled and fell into anthropology because of, uh, this one disagreeable professor.
1: Interesting. It's like kind of, do you consider it a happy accident?
2: Totally, totally, totally happy accident. And, 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 uh, and the thing was the, the anthropology department was in some disarray at the time. Um, and, uh, and I was able to, to utilize that disarray to, to get a lot of extra credits, um, Which in turn gave me free time to take writing classes in the in the School of the Arts.
1: Okay, because I was going to say, like, then were you like on a self-directed course um, on the literary side, reading-wise, and then writing-wise, or you had? It sounds like you had some structure with classroom work, even uh, even though you were anthropology major.
2: Yeah, well, I did I I did take writing workshops uh, in the School of the Arts. Uh, I just didn't take any English classes in sort of like the literary canon you know so so you know my 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 reading uh is embarrassing you know like the things that i haven't read is, is embarrassing Dude, and i'm not, you're, not pre-
1: clear. you're preaching to the choir like that's like one yeah. of like my because i'm i was raised catholic so i have like a naturally guilty bearing and then like that is one of the things that like you know i i burn with uh with guilt over that i just haven't read
0: enough you
2: know yeah yeah i mean and and if if, if one is a writer and one knows, you know, the extent of what one has not read.
1: You know, it's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. Well, and you'll never, um, and you'll, you know, you'll never fill that hole either, because like, it's it's impossible, really, to do all the reading you wish you could. There's just not yeah. enough time. Ta- you know, time, but no, no, no. Um, as a young writer, you know, because like you did wind up having pretty significant success in your mid twenties. So, like, not that mm-hmm. long after you left Columbia, um, right. you know, were you showing? unusual promise early, like in these early efforts in these writing workshops at Columbia, like were were you noticing that your stuff was significantly better than I have to imagine it was significantly better than other students or was it a case where it wasn't then, but then you just learned faster than other people?
2: No, I think, I I mean, I, I, I I think I got a lot of praise. I think I I remember getting a lot of encouragement and a lot of sort of validation, um, which 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 you know I wonder what kind of artist I would be and what the kind of character I would have if you know when you face adversity very early on you know it's sort of it's it's like I went rollerblading once and I was like an idiot so I've never gone rollerblading again
1: <laughs> doesn't every, doesn't everybody look like an idiot rollerblading
2: <laughs> the first time sure but you know people persevere and then they look you know like you know Brian Boitano or something. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you, if, if, if you have a real sort of limited capacity to like feel, to feel like an idiot, you know, like a, like a, a low tolerance for like that feeling, especially with if anything has to do with arts, then, then you don't do it, you know?
0: Right. Um,
2: and, and, and it so happens that, that I, you know, I, I would do things and people would like it. And, and so then you're like, Oh, well maybe I should keep doing it. You know, it, 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 it wove in nicely with my own ambitions, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there was a certain there was a certain amount of 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 good fortune in that I received encouragement and and approbation and validation early on.
1: And did were and you thinking? Were you thinking then, when I get out of this place, I'm going to write books?
2: You know, I never really thought of it so clearly. I didn't know how I didn't know anything about how those things worked. You know, I, I and some of the stories that ended up being in my first book. Uh, were were written you know in college you know and and of and of course when you're in college you don 't think about oh I'm putting together a collection right. i mean I certainly didn 't think that way I was just like, oh well, i've got to write a story you know um, but I think pe-, pe you know people responded in ways that 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 surprised me and, and made it made it compelling to keep going you know
1: okay, so what happens when you get out of columbia um, when I get out of columbia i
2: I became uh a a counselor uh, working at George Washington Houses on the east side, um, where Mark Antony was born. Um, uh, George Washington Houses, like 96th Street and uh, 98th Street and 3rd Avenue uh, on the east side. And my job was to visit uh, all the schools uh, in East Harlem and the South Bronx, all the public schools in East Harlem and South Bronx, where the students from my community center might attend school so um to kind of do uh, get get a sense of where they were going what their needs were and how we as a community center could help you know i was obviously totally unqualified to do this um, but it was the job that i got and uh and you know it was a, it was in some ways a super interesting first job because sure. uh, because i got to see you know Everything from like Votex to like experimental, you know, uh, you know, arts education programs to like environmental science education programs, and visit small schools and big schools. And
1: wait, wait, what and, is what is Votex, or is it you say Votex?
2: Yeah, vocational technical.
1: Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah,
2: Daniel Gompers Vocational Technical High School in the South Bronx um, was was one of the schools that I had to visit.
1: And so, and you, were you writing during this time, like writing fiction, like continuing to do stories?
2: Yeah, yeah, I wrote
1: fiction um,
2: every day, every day after uh, after coming home from work. Okay, and I
1: had a little office. Yeah. That and that's what, like, you get home from a day of work, which has got—I mean, it sounds like it was an interesting job, but could probably also be somewhat exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, you get home and to unwind, you're working on a book, on stories. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, that's the part where, where, um, I don't even remember making like sort of a conscious decision that I was going to do this. It was just what I did, you know, and it's true that at that point in my life, I was already identifying myself as a writer.
1: Did you have any social life or were you living pretty monastically?
2: Uh, I lived with my girlfriend we had some other roommates. Um, you know, my social life was pretty much, you know, me and her, um, You know, I wasn't living, you know, downtown and going out at all. Right. You know, I lived, I lived on 125th street and my, you know, if I went below 96th street, it was like very rare. Um,
1: So you didn't, you didn't have like the hipstery New York experience. Not, not
2: even remotely, not even remotely. All my friends were public school teachers. All my friends were, you know, counselors. All my friends were, you know, people who worked in, in education and, and many of whom came from, upper Manhattan in the Bronx, um, you know, originally. And, and that was the, that was the world that I lived in.
1: Wow. It's a hard, it's a hard time to live in. I mean, especially if you're a public school teacher, I've got to imagine like, it's like, I have never lived in New York, but like, I try to wrap my head around how to like people live in such small spaces and like, you know, like it seems difficult, unusually difficult, but
2: yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's getting there and, and going, you know, to a fancy pants college and, you know, you know that's a, that's one way that's it's a little bit easier to get to New York if you went to college there because you have the, those four years kind of as a as a running start to acclimate yourself and right. and you know to get to know sort of where you fit in and what you want to do. And in in my case, you know, my first apartment out, out out of you know when I was no longer in college was you know ten blocks north of Columbia, and I got a job that was right across town. You know, I would just take them at the the M96 across, um, across Manhattan, you know? And I mean, the, the the thing that I didn't do was like, you know, go, go to bars and see a lot of music and, you know, move to Brooklyn and like do all the things that, that like, you know, I guess I
1: was just too, um, did you ever have a handlebar mustache? (laughs) I feel like those, I feel like those are, that's kind of the, the hipstery thing. Am I wrong?
2: You know, I have a, I have a, I can admit this because it's radio that I I can't grow a mustache.
1: Oh, you can't. Yeah, see, I have trouble too. It's like a little spotty.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a mine's embarrassing.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's okay. You know, you have the good hair. You have it. You know, the good hair is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So okay, so the let's get to like the New Yorker. You published a story in the New Yorker when you were what, twenty six years old? Yeah. How yeah. did that How did that happen? That's a rare well, That's a rare occurrence, right? Yeah, it's it's
2: it's pretty rare. I, I, you know, it happened like a lot of things. You know, make sure good luck and hard work and you know being in the right place at the right time with the right story. Uh, basically, I continued after college taking classes at at a um, in the school of the arts, taking workshops. Um, so I was teaching and taking a night class. Uh, parenthetically, I also decided that I that I should probably have a plan B. So I remember taking a Intro to HTML class at City College.
1: Uh, the, the, <laughs> just, a, just in case, it's a nice arrow. It's case. a nice arrow to have in your quiver. The old HTML.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I know how to make the screen turn from orange to green. Um, <laughs> um, so anyway, so I was taking that class, and one of my teachers liked one of the stories that I that I'd written, and he was like, "You know, I think have you ever thought about getting an agent?" And I said, "I had not. I didn't know what agents were." And he's like, "Oh, called up this guy. I tell him, tell him that uh, that I." Recommended you, So I did, I called up this guy and he was like, yeah, send me some stories I send him some stories. And eventually he was like, you know, uh, I like your stories. Let's stay in touch. And uh, we did stay in touch and eventually I, I signed with him. Um, I still didn't really know anything about what that
1: meant. You know, who is he? Do you mind saying uh, his name?
2: Eric Simonoff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he's a terrific agent. Um, um, and, uh, very, very well read and super, super literary and, and, um, and, you know, his career has grown has a lot mine, you know, I mean, not because of me, obviously, but you are, you are
1: like just dragging of... him up the mountain. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he's, he's going to put his kids to college on my, <laughs>
0: uh,
2: on, on, you know, the, the, the agent's cut of my, my advances. <laughs> um, Eric, uh. Called me up one day and said, "Hey, the the New Yorker fiction, the New Yorker's new fiction editor, and um, and she wants to do uh, a debut fiction issue. So send me all the stories you have." Um, this was after my two years in New York, uh, working as I first worked in East Harlem and then worked in uh, in Central Harlem as a tenth grade English teacher at a small public school um, on 135th and St. Nick. And then after that, I went to Peru and I went to Peru and I was, uh, you know, just, just kind of immersing myself in, in Lima. And then this, uh, De- Deborah Treisman came on the New Yorker, replaced Bill Buford, uh, during my first year at Iowa. So I basically got to Iowa and was writing like a maniac, uh, basically all the stuff that I hadn't written while I was in Lima because I'd been, you know, too busy being out in the streets and um and i um I sent Eric all the stories that i'd written and uh, and he sent those stories to to Deborah, and you know she picked one of them
1: Wow
2: did that, that ch- did, did
1: you feel a significant shift you know was there because I feel like the New Yorker like has a unique station in the world of literary fiction in particular, just literary writing, like when they bless you and say you're good enough to be in our pages. That changes people's perception, I think in a significant way, at least people who pay attention to that sort of stuff like was that your experience of it, or is that overstating it
2: no i mean i was that was yeah of course that was my experience it was my it was it was my first published story anywhere i mean you know the first thing I'd published outside of a of a college you know literary magazine you know with like a i mean yeah it was huge you know yeah. i mean i I got a book deal on that based on that story. You know I mean?
1: And you were at Iowa when this happened?
2: Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, it was, it was uh, accepted my second semester at Iowa.
1: How jealous were
2: your classmates? (laughs) You know, that's the thing, man. Like, I had such good friends at Iowa that that I, you know, I've been told has this reputation of being super competitive and, 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 you know, knives out kind of careerism. But, you know, if there was, if there were people who were jealous, I didn't, I didn't feel it because you know, I really was surrounded by people who genuinely were, you know, were genuinely thrilled for me, you know, and genuinely loved me. And, and you know, they're still some of my closest friends. So yeah. And I didn't feel any of that.
1: That's cool. You know, I think it just depends on the individual human beings and the mixture, you know, but sometimes there's people that are more hyper competitive in the wrong way than, than others. Maybe. I don't know. Cause I've talked to people that have, you know, I've talked to a lot of different writers who have gone to Iowa and I've heard varying yeah. things and, just makes me believe that it just comes down to the class that you're in and sort of a yeah, draw, you know totally totally so um, I want to talk a little bit before I let you go about um, your adventures in Lima because they factor in significantly um, into your work and mm-hmm. um, you know I like the the research that you did uh, in the prison system um, you know all of this stuff that you did on the ground the fact that you didn't have time to write because as you said you were so busy in the streets um, mm-hmm. you know, during that, that, uh, time in Lima, uh, what was it, I guess in between Columbia and Iowa? Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I left New York on August 11th, 2001. Um, and, uh, good, and time, Lima. good
1: timing. <laughs> get out, yeah, from, get out yeah. of New York right before nine 11, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. It was amazing. I saw nine eleven 11 on, on TV in Peru. Oh my
0: God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, what, you know, what's it like, you know, what was it like for you to go back there? That was, the, was that the first time you spent like really extended time living there in your life before, I guess, mm-hmm. like, before, you know, when you, as were an born.
2: adult, certainly as a as an adult. Yeah. And, and, and on my own and, and, and sort of making that deliberate decision to step out of middle-class Lima and get to know the the breadth of, of the city for sure. You know, I left, um, my parents i left new york my parents had an apartment in in lima that was unfurnished <laughs> i was basically living on uh in this unfurnished apartment in in uh in san isidro which is a very very nice part of the city and um uh, and i was i was kind of bored and i i was taking some classes in in literature at, at the university but i was there essentially cuz i wanted to get to know the city, you know, and I, I found myself frustrated cause I wasn't, I wasn't getting there, you know? So I, I just started, I basically did a tour of, of, of the entire city. I, I talked to tons of community organizations and just said, Hey, can I, can I come along? I just want to get to know what you're doing, you know, let me just observe. And eventually I found one that I wanted to work with and, and I, and I, you know, proposed the project and they accepted. And, and I went to go live in this neighborhood or district of the city called San Juan de Lurigancho, um, which, as it happens, Lurigancho is the, the, the place where the prisons are. So even, the, you know, that kind of happy accident, um, I've always been fascinated with the prisons because San Juan de Lurigancho is uh, is the, the largest district in the city. It, because of the, its association with the prison has the same name, The rest of the city sometimes equates the entire district with the prisons itself
0: Hmm.
2: to to the point that, especially back then, less so now, you know, but but back then my my students would tell me that when they were applying for a job, they would sometimes say they lived in a different, they would use like a friend of the family's address in a different district of the city because uh, the connotation of religantio was so bad.
1: It's like being from San Quentin, <laughs> or yeah, but yeah, exactly. And, like, same kind of thing, like the name association. Yeah. But you know, you talk about the happy accident, and you and then like I think about how um, you know that decision bore creative fruit, um, and I think I like that old, I think it's like an old Woody Allen line, like what eighty percent of life is showing up or whatever. Like that's mm-hmm. a you know leaving the comfort, even though it was unfurnished. You know, your parents' apartment is in a nice part of town. Uh, not everybody makes the decision to move across town and live in the prison district. <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever right, you want
2: to call right, it. Like right.
1: that, That's a big decision and it turns out to be momentous, you know, and, and it was it was it was a huge
2: decision. I mean life changing, you know, and I owe so much of of my career and even my identity to that place and to the neighborhood, which was called Diaz de Octubre, the tenth of October. Um, and the people that I met and the stories they told me. And the thing is that I, I remember now, I think back, I was there and I, and I felt like, you know, God, I'm not doing enough, you know, when, and I didn't realize, I didn't have the maturity to realize that I was doing exactly what I had to do. You know, I wasn't writing. I was just hanging out. I was just immersing myself in a completely different cultural context, talking to people, talking to young people and old people and walking around and, and, you know, you know, playing soccer, you know, in, in the streets and, you know, just doing the things that you do, you know, going to the market every morning and having breakfast and, and uh, you know, taking the bus like everyone else and just doing the things that people do. And, uh, and it was great. It was a tremendous experience, but I didn't at the time realize how rich it was. It was when I got to Iowa and started writing about it. But I was like, oh, my God, I actually just had a pretty incredible experience and I can now write with a certain amount of, of, I feel a certain amount of authority writing about things because I, because I, I know them pretty well now, you know?
1: Well, I mean, is it, it fair to say that it, that, the, that experience gave you the last two books, or at least in part?
2: I mean, I would say that experience has given me everything in terms of my, in terms of my writing career. I mean, it's given me
1: uh, a method, you know? It's given me... And, and what do you say by, and, and what do you mean by method? I mean, just that you know that 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 I just operate on
2: immersion. You know, I mean that's right. the only the only really the only way I know how to how to how to learn. You know, um, I'm I'm not a I'm not a a, a library type researcher. I'm more of the kind of person that you know just go to a place a lot and talk to people a lot and 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 you know be genuine when you're talking to them and and ask questions and don't be afraid to ask stupid questions as long as you're genuine. You know, people generally answer the question that you ask them. You know, sure, um, and listen when they respond. You know, and uh, you know, be nice and 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 observe and be, be quiet. You know, let 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 other people say what needs to be said. You know, and uh, and that's what I do. I mean, that's what I've done a lot, and and, and I and I think I learned that. In Lugiancho, you know, in, in San Juan de Urigancho, in India's de walking the streets and making friends, and you know, I still go back and see my old friends from 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 the neighborhood. Every, you know, almost every time in Lima, I, I make I make time to go hang out and can see them and keep up and meet their kids now and you know meet their wives and you know just play a little soccer and drink a little beer and you know reminisce and and, and take the obligatory photograph, you know, in front of the. In front of their you know the street where we used to play, and you know I mean all these things are super uh, you know if i 'm nostalgic and sort of get becleped about anything' it 's about that time because because it was it was so so important to me,
1: so it gave you and you say it just it gave you it gave you method, it gave you um, material material deeper understanding of self deeper understanding of of the complexity
2: in- of Peru and the complexity of Lima, you know because when you 're a kid, you go to visit your Tia or your Tio and you see your cousins and you, you, you follow the circuit that your parents have planned for you. And then when you're older, you can make the choice to step outside of that circuit or not. And, uh, and, and I, I, I did, I guess I did go in a, in a pretty radically different direction and, and, and decide to see a radically different part of Lima. And in that first part, before I settled on to de Rigancho and actually moved there, um, you know, I, I, I was like, you know, I, I realized I only knew three or four districts of the city and the city had, you know, 30 and I, I, I went to all of them, man. I mean, I just wanted to see all of them and I just figured out ways to go there and, um, you know, things that I wanted to see and people that I wanted to meet and, and, um, and I just sort of found a way to, to get to all these different places.
1: Well, well, I, uh, I think that's super cool. Like I'm always, I've talked about this on the show before, but I think like immersion research, like not only does it tend to yield interesting work, but I just think it's an interesting way to live your life as a creative person. Because uh, otherwise, I think you can spend too much time, but kind of bogged down in the basement of a library. Not that that's a bad thing, but you know what I'm saying. Like you can, yeah, yeah, you yeah, can yeah. kind of miss your life in a way. Um, so I think that's super admirable. I, I think that um, it takes a uh, Cajones, as you like said earlier you know to to kind (laughs) of jump outside of your comfort zone so um i applaud you for that i congratulate you on the new book and all the success you've had and uh, i certainly wish you the best going forward thanks brad i've enjoyed it man okay you guys there you go that's daniel alarcon go get his book it is called at night we walk in circles it is available now from riverhead in the hardcover edition it's also available in ebook i believe you can find daniel online at daniel he's on facebook and you can follow him on twitter where his handle is at daniel g alarcon thanks to kill rock stars as usual for all the great music be sure to check out killrockstars.com and uh, don't forget to go get the app the free official other people app the official app of uh, this program it's available now for your iphone ipad ipod touch or android device and it's the best way to listen and to keep up with new episodes Uh, it's also the best way to access premium content and the full archives so go get that if you haven't done it already the app itself is free uh okay i think that's it what else is there folks what else can i tell you uh conan o'brien is tall he's very thin uh he's a funny human being andy richter Also very funny, Jim Gaffigan. Uh, He made me laugh, as did uh, Will Arnett. Jim Gaffigan was uh, telling some jokes about kale and whole foods and the various kinds of milk that I found enjoyable. Did you see this? Maybe you watched Conan. Like, am I telling you something you already know? Please remember that George Surratt died at age 31 and only sold two paintings while he was alive and that uh, Leo Tolstoy kept a portrait of Charles Dickens on the wall in his study. That is it for now. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Daniel Alarcone. Go get his novel. It is out there. It is waiting for you. Uh, otherwise, I'll be back on Wednesday with uh, more conversation, more rambling, more rumination, more cogitation. I cogitate vocally. Is that possible? Or does a uh, Does cogitate imply silence? I'll have to look that up. Uh, Is cogitate even a word? I have no idea. It's the end of the show. I don't think anyone's even listening to this. Are you still listening to this? What the fuck is wrong with you?